the pew, turn to Philippians chapter 2 uh, this morning, Philippians 2, and we'll get there here in a moment. Now, Philippians 2 is another familiar passage. Last week we looked at uh, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, in the parable of the prodigal son. And I just ask that we would pray and, and hear that story with, with fresh ears. And this morning I would like to pray and have us hear the most famous hymn of all uh, and hear that uh, song freshly again uh, this morning. So let's pray, and we'll continue. God, we love you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together to study your word, your truth, uh, and learn and remind ourselves, Lord, of your love, your grace, your mercy today. So God, I, I pray for my own ears and my own heart, my own mind. I pray for all of us here together today, united in one spirit, as one church, as one body, as one family, God, that we would hear today your word again, that it would renew our spirits within us, God, that we would turn our attention from ourselves and looking to the interests of others. Lord, the beauty of your word that you inspired and, and that you uh, brought on our hearts, God, we just pray that we would hear it again today well. Uh, we love you and we praise you. Help us now, God, to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul, he finishes his greetings, his encouragement. We believe Paul to be writing this letter. The most, one of the most encouraging passages of all the Bible is written in one of the most difficult of circumstances. So it's good reminders to us that despite what's going on around us, you know, we spend any bit of time together and we start talking about all the things that are troubling us. I know nothing's troubling you too much right now, right? You know, that these words could come out of circumstances that seem so beyond control, so beyond um, what we would consider pleasant. Uh, these words, the most encouraging words, come from the most difficult of circumstances. Let's hear Paul's heart for the church, beginning in Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and in, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality God with something to be uh, equality consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death 
even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In part two of this series, Heading Home, it's based on this simple quote, that God is at home and it's those of us who have gone for the long walk. And last week we took time to look at the sort of things that we sort of walk away from home for, walk away from God for. And one of those things that we wrestle with is that we, this sort of ongoing pursuit of pleasure. And just getting our lives sort of washed away and filled with how much of this world can I pursue and not hurt myself. And the story of the prodigal son teaches us that we are to turn from uh, this sort of pursuit of pleasure and do what most pleases God. And we landed the plane with this simple yet incredibly important thing that we shouldn't live our lives aiming towards what will bring us the absolute most pleasure, but rather what is it that pleases God the most? And what, God, what pleases God the very most is you, restored, renewed, reconciled, forgiven, redeemed. When we look at Ephesians 1, it is this message that it is God's great pleasure and will that you would be restored to him. And I, got, I live and I operate in this wild idea that God actually likes you. All right, I'm picking on you now, right? That God cares so deeply for you that he's rescued you, he's redeemed you, he desires a relationship with you. And we really wrestle with that, and it, that wrestling match goes all the way back into the sort of beginning of creation and the ordering of creation and the relationship that Adam and Eve have with God, and it becomes this sort of power struggle. The power struggle of what it is that we're seeking and sort of what we wander away from God for. And while we wander away from God for pleasure, we also wander away from home in the pursuit of power. I'm going to ask you a question, and you all have to answer honestly. Who likes having control? Uh, we all do, right? We want control. When things are out of control, it drives us crazy. I've had a household uh, filled with small children uh, for the last couple of days, and uh, it's been a delight. I mean, it's just been so good. Everything's been perfectly handled and under control. It's been amazing. Uh, I know you're not supposed to lie from the pulpit, but I'm just trying to work on things, you know, so speak positive things out into the world. Uh, we like having our control. We like, we like power. And we may not come out and say that I really like power, but what we are saying is that we really like having things handled. I think about, uh, I think about this often. How do I want to keep things manageable? How do I want to keep things in order? And it's this sort of constant wrestling match. And the thing is, we're, we are all really good. Uh, you, may not, you may not agree, but we're all really good at keeping things in control. When difficult things happen in our life, we have uh, built-in sort of safety nets in our lives that sort of 
keep things in control, that we wouldn't necessarily panic too much. Like if something bad happens, we end up finding ourselves in a situation where, you know what, I at least have the credit card to help me out and, and bail me out of this situation. At least, at least I have the credit card. Or if something really gets bad and things go wrong and you end up having to call the insurance agency, well, at least we have insurance. And insurance is that sort of thing that gives us this mirage that we have sense of control, that we have it all in order. And we operate and we live every day with these things in our pockets that at a moment's notice we can get whatever it is that we want and we have and we operate and function within this sense that we have great control. I like to pop open the Amazon app and I think, okay, what is it that I need today? And I hit a couple buttons and within sometimes 24 hours at my doorstep there is something at my door exactly what I needed. Look at me. Master of my house, I get exactly what I want. I am in control. I can get what I want, when I want it, however I want it, as fast as I want it. I'm in control, right? We sort of operate in this. And, and what I am afraid of and what happens in our life is that this sort of ongoing mirage of control has slowly eroded my soul. That I have somehow throughout all of this management of my ego and self, all of this pursuit and all of this handling and all of this control has somehow boosted my ego in such a way that I've forgotten how far away from God I've wandered. There's a very powerful story in the life of Israel. Israel is called out of Egypt and and that first, you know, that first sort of real test, they're in the wilderness and they're in the desert of sin and, and, uh, and Moses leads the people there and, and the people start grumbling and complaining. I know Israel likes to do that. We don't, but they do. And they crum- grumble and complain and they say, Moses, why did you drag us out of here just to die in the desert? We're going to die of thirst and Moses is like, God, they got a point here. We need a little help. We need a little comfort. We need a little something to drink. And God says, okay, we'll take that staff. And that staff has been with Moses for a long time, right? That staff with Moses has been the thing that God used to topple the mightiest of armies. God uses this staff to show Pharaoh who's boss. God uses this staff to part waters. And he says, Moses, I want you to take that staff and I want you to strike the rock. And the rock at Meribah, the place of testing, Moses strikes the rock and the rock does what? It it pours out Gatorade, right, everywhere for, uh, no, water, right, water. Uh, And he said, the water spreads and the people quench their thirst. Several years later, in the book of Numbers, that happened in Exodus 17, and then in Exodus, or in Numbers 20, a similar thing happens in another desert, in another place, and the people start complaining. Say, we're thirsty, we're thirsty, we, we need something to drink. And they cry out, and they say the same very grumbling and complaining things. And they say, God, you've taken us out of Egypt. We were never thirsty in Egypt. We always had what we needed. Why did you take us out here? And they start the grumbling and complaining. Moses goes to God and says, hey, well, you know, what do we need to do? And God says, this time, Moses, I'd like for you to speak to the rock. And you've heard this story before, and you know what Moses does. He speaks to the rock, right? 
No, he doesn't speak to the rock. He takes that trusty old staff that's always been there for him, and he takes it, and he strikes the rock, and nothing happens. He dusted it off. He polished it. You know, he put it on the whittling thing, and he, you know, took it right down. And he said, all right, now it's ready. And he, that's probably not in the Bible. And he strikes, he strikes the rock again. And the second time, the water pours out of the rock. And the people, they get their water. And that trusty way in which Moses has operated and learned and had control, he gave them water. If we are not careful, if we are not careful with our lives, we will live and operate in this great mystery of thinking that we are in control of God. And that's where Moses goes wrong. I can control what God does through this staff. And God says, I want you to trust me to merely just speak to this rock and it'll pour forth water. In the great uh, book that has really changed my life, uh, it's written by Sky Jathani, and the, book of the, uh, the title of the book is called With. And I've shared with you before several times over the years because it's been so impactful to me, uh, different snippets from the book. And, and it's all about a life with God. And he sets up the whole book by talking to a, uh, or sharing with us and teaching us that what really, the way we relate to God is a life from God, a life for God, a life under God, and a life over God. And all of it is uh, a way of sort of explaining and rate, relating our relationship to God as a way to control God and get the outcomes that we want. And so we sort of adopt these different ideas and the way that we function and connect with God and we say, well, I'm living my life for God. And the way the, a life for God works is that if I do these things for God, then what happens? I, I get the outcomes that I want. I get the results. And so, so long as I'm doing these things for God, they will all work out well. Famously, uh, this sort of connection, uh, connection sort of happens uh, in, the, uh, in the NFL game with the Buffalo Bills, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. I think it was Stevens. That's not right. But anyways, he, catch, he, he catches the ball in the end zone, and he drops it, and he would have won the game. And, uh, and at, after the game, he tweeted to God, and he says, God, I've done all of these things for you, and you made me drop the ball. I tell God that all the time. It's like, really, God? I blew it here. I did all of those things for you. Shouldn't it have worked out? And so we have this relationship with God where we feel like we have control. Just as Moses has control of God with the staff in his hands, we have our principles, we have our laws, we have our rules, we have our religion, we have all of these things that give us the outcome that we want. And as I preached last week and shared with you, I encourage you with, and what I want for you to hear today is, is that God doesn't want the for and the over and the under and all of that. He wants with. He wants you. What has brought God the greatest pleasure, what has got what has brought God the greatest delight and joy is when something that is lost is found, when something that has wandered from home has come, come back. 
who does God throw the party for but the lost sheep, the found coin, and the found son? But who is it that doesn't get to be in on the party? I think it's the one who's wandered away from home in pursuit of power. Remember in Luke 15, it starts with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, what are they grumbling about? They're grumbling about sinners. Sinners, people who have done bad things, and they're hanging out with Jesus, and they say, who is this man that he is eating with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus tells that story to those people and their hearts, and the very last illustration, the very last parable is about the prodigal son coming home, but then there's one person who doesn't come home. He doesn't go into the party. He stays outside, and it was the older son. He said, I'm not going in there. I'm staying out here. And it's, it's my fear sometimes. It's my heart sometimes where I wonder in all of the pursuit of all of the control, of all of the outcomes, of all the things that I'm trying to keep in order in my life that I haven't somehow managed to miss having a relationship with God. That all of this on the outside, I don't go in the party in the home. I think Jesus is teaching the Pharisee, you're right there outside of the house. You're doing all of the things. But you're forgetting this one thing, a life with me. You're looking at Philippians 2 and you're saying, Jordan, you haven't talked about Philippians 2 yet. When are we going to talk about Philippians 2? Well, we'll talk about it now. When we seek control, whose, whose interests do we have in mind? I don't know about you, but the way the remote control works, when I have it, it always finds what I want. And when someone else has it, man, are they bad at it. Well, why would you choose this? We use our control to, to gain what interests us. And Paul looks at the church, and he has spent enough time with people to know that so long as we're seeking power, so long as we're seeking control, so long as this, this is the aim of our hearts, there will never be unity in the church. That so long as we live such hyper-individualized lives, we will never have peace, we will never have unity. And so Paul just says, would we pay attention to Jesus? When we look at the problems of our society, when we look at what is going on in the world around us, there has been a pursuit of power and as one group gets power and another group gets power and there's the sides arguing with one another and they're in their own individual pursuits and all trying to gain power, there has always been this sense of control and there's always someone fighting with one another 
I don't need to elaborate any more than that. You can look at any aspect of any area of life, and you can look at your coworkers, you can look at politics, you can look in your home, you can look with your friends, you can look in your neighborhoods, and you can see people who are trying to use power to get what they want. And here's the hard part. Here's the part that most hurts. The world will do as it does. Where this hurts the most is when it comes to the church. It's good that it's here, you know, not here, because I'm in control and I'm in power and you all do what I say, right? We hear those churches. And it is the great fear of my life that you would somehow think that I'm somehow more important than you are. We all, and I, it, it sounds like a humble thing and, and false thing and just empty rhetoric. But we all are equal at the foot of the cross. We all have, we all have the same footing. I agree, Parker Grace. <laughs> Preach it, sister. You know, I have control over babies being quiet during the sermon. Like, you know, how much control do I really have, you know? But this is an important point because we see churches topple because of leadership where you can't question me and the person standing on the stage. I hope that over 15 years you have learned that I love you and I am equal with you. That we would love one another. And Paul looks at the dangers of the church and he says, guys, if we're going to function in this world, we have to abandon the way the world has functioned and worked all this time. And leadership does not look the way, uh, in the church does not look like the way the leadership in the world works. And what he says is that we seek unity by seeking Christ. We seek peace by seeking Christ. We seek all of this by humbling ourselves the way Christ humbles himself. Do we sometimes try to get what interests us in the church? Do we think, well, I would really like this church more if we did things this way we try to control church we try to get it to fit around what we want I am 100% guilty of that we all are you know I'd be, I'd be a lot happier with worship if we would sing more Oasis Wonderwall Right? I mean, that was a great song. We could all sing Bon Jovi. That would be really good. You guys all thought I was going to say hymns, didn't you? No. I mean, we need to get, like, some Bon Jovi hits going. Like, I think we would really, really do well with Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. I mean, we could crank that. Right? Brad could probably lead us. I mean, that would be really epic. That would really interest me, and it would infuriate two of you, and that's just how it's going to go. That seemed really targeted. I didn't mean it to be. You hear me though, right? Then in a world where you get to surround yourself with everything that interests you and you get to control everything, what we do with our life, what we do with our life is we try to get it all to work out to be just exactly what we want it to be so that we are thoroughly happy. And Paul writes this letter in a circumstance in which 
his life is not the, the least bit desirable. Imprisoned, wanting and longing to be with friends and family. And he writes this letter and he says, you know what? The most important thing is our unity. The most important thing is that we would not pursue our own interests, but we would look to the interest of others, that we would value others above ourselves. I was thinking about this statement, valuing others over ourselves. It's really hard for us to value others over ourselves when I keep overvaluing myself. And I was thinking about this because, you know, what we say is being humble is, is not thinking uh, less of yourself, like I'm, you know, like I'm a dummy, I'm an idiot, I'm, you know, it's not that, it's, but it's thinking of yourself less often. I don't know how many windows in my week where I give the opportunity to think of others more than I think of myself. And I think about, okay, if this is what Paul is challenging us to, is to value others, to look to the interests of others, I have a really hard time with that, and my success rate is pretty meager. I don't know how yours is. Who's cranking out 100%? Anybody? Remember, this sermon's about humility. It's really hard in a world that's been completely designed, it seems like, to say you're not happy until you get everything you want, until you have everything around you that completely interests you and completely fulfills you. And I wonder, how do I get there? And I feel like, if you're like me, it, it can be this thing where Paul tells us to do something and you're kind of like, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There are times I serve my wife every once in a while in our house. And here's how it works. I want to make sure that Wendy sees it when I do it. You have to get credit. It's important to get credit. And it's that very act of making sure that I get credit. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. I want to do it in my home where I get credit and when I do the service around the community, I want to make sure that I get credit. How do we do this looking to the interest of others and abandon the vain conceit and the selfish ambition? How do we abandon all of that? I have... I read this and I feel like what often feels like a miserable failure. Don't always look to the interest of others. But Paul reminds us and he gives us courage. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I sure hope verse 10 means this to you. Where power equals control, humility, it equals surrender. It equals surrender. When I wrestle with selfish ambition and vain conceit, those things that just sort of eat away at you and lead you down these paths where you never really will be interested in others and caring for them, putting the needs of others over your own self. That's a wild pursuit in which I don't know that we'll ever get there. But it's verse 10 that shines the light of the way. It's verse 10 that empowers us and encourages us and points us in the right direction because if we're ever going to head home, the first step heading home from the pursuit of power is to fall on our knees in prayer. And it's surrendering ourselves to say this truth, that it is Jesus Christ alone who is Lord. It's Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. It's Jesus Christ who has rescued us. It's only in the power of Christ that my return home is even possible. We can keep seeking power and we will keep failing until we trust and know who truly is the one in power. And one day we all will, whether you like it or not, we will fall on our knees and we will declare that the one who is in power is Jesus Christ, who reigns over heaven and earth, who is first and last, was with God in the beginning. He is the first one in creation. And you all in Christ are a new creation and you call him Lord and King. The first step home from the pursuit of power and control and self-interest and vanity and selfish ambition and prestige, uh, uh, prestige and power and pride and all of that, the first step home is to say, Jesus, you are Lord, not me. That Jesus lead my life, not me. Jesus, lead me home. Your first step away from the pursuit of power is to trust in Christ's power for you. My invitation to you, my encouragement to you to live a life of selflessness and service and kindness begins with each day, each week, each moment saying, Christ, I surrender this day, I surrender this moment, I surrender my life to you the leader of my life. Jesus, would you lead me? Um, we were at a week of camp a few weeks ago, and uh, I had the joy of sharing the hope of salvation with kids. One of our, or several of our kids were there, and one of them responded as a wonderful young lady who's you've probably run into and she's probably said something crazy to you. Um, those are all true statements, right, Jolie? Yes. Uh, she is uh, one of our delightful and wonderful children in our church family. And I would love for her to come forward now. 
And we are, uh, I'm excited to share with you that Jolie at a week of camp said, I would like to give my life to Jesus. And so we're going to clap for you because that's an awesome decision. And I wanted to say something to you. You have a lot of family here today, right? A couple of people? Not a couple? How many? Are you seriously counting right now? We'll wait. You have 12 family members here. What have I told you you were wrong? What have I told you you had 80 people here today? When we get baptized, we join the family of believers. Your family just got a lot bigger today because you made the most important decision that we all need to make and that we need to make every day over and over and over and over again. It's the belief that Jesus is Lord. We all will fall on our knees and we'll worship him. Friends, the decision to be baptized that you made so many years ago was a decision to say, Jesus is the Lord and leader of my life. The first step back from a life of controlling everything for ourselves is to say, Lord, I want to have life in your kingdom and pursue you. Jolie, thanks for being a great sermon illustration today. Stay up here. Well, my hands are cold, sorry. Cold hands, warm heart is what they say. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to call Papa up, okay? Sound good? All right. God, we love you so much. And uh, let, let really, truly, God, uh, Jolie's decision today be glorifying to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us home. Thank you for... not leaving us but coming to us God today we declare Jesus as our Lord and our Savior and we love you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen. Rich would you come up Rich is going to share uh, and lead his wonderful granddaughter in the good confession of faith 